PDPods present the Corona Cast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a bonus episode of the PD Podcast uh, with myself, Prane Budev. As you know, until now, we've been interviewing the legends and luminaries of the field in pediatric orthopedics. However, with this WHO mandated pandemic in the world with coronavirus, I thought it was important to help address some of the issues that this is going to be bringing into uh, not only the world of pediatric orthopedics, but uh, our specialty in general uh, and the whole field of medicine. I'm very lucky to be joined by uh, Miss Rantimi Ayodele. She's a consultant in pediatric orthopedics at Maidstone and Tunbridge Well Hospital and is also a life coach and trainer. I, I got in contact with her after I read her article that she published on LinkedIn last weekend, which I do recommend all um, people to have a read and there'll be a copy of the link in the notes. Uh, however, I'm sure most of you will read it and realize that half it has all become obsolete. Uh, but nevertheless, I feel we have an important conversation to be had about this. And I hope you'll continue to join us um, as I'm hoping to do a few more of these with physicians from around the world, explaining the impact it's having on their current practice. So Rantimi, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So, you know, this has all sort of broken out in the last couple of weeks in the UK. Um, in China, you know, there was reports of this happening in December, and I'm sure this has been something that, if you were to watch a map changing, has spread quite rapidly, and that's obviously due to the amount of uh, travel and also the sort of delayed infected period of this. Um, tell me, you know, you wrote specifically about how this affects healthcare workers. H- how are we going to get through this? Uh, you know, how are we going to manage this crisis? You know, the government has told us this may last six months, maybe even longer and probably 12 to 18 months until we potentially even get a vaccine. So I think I'll start by saying why I wrote the article. I wrote the article because it became apparent to me that we were all starting to feel a sense of anxiety and stress um, about the future being uncertain. Maybe even in a a seven day period, things have changed so rapidly um, in what was going on in other countries and then what we were being told was going to happen in the UK and listening to colleagues and communicating with some people on WhatsApp, it became apparent that we were all beginning to get stressed. And I felt that um, having some understanding of looking at how we um, function in stress and how we begin to develop resilience, it would be useful to write an article that just gave people an idea of some things that they can do to, um, begin to prepare themselves and begin to deal with some of the stress that, that we're all, we have all been feeling. And so I think that that kind of speaks a little to how we begin to get through um, this crisis is that partly we have to start with looking at the fact that we are stressed and looking at how um, we begin to get good information, looking at why we get anxious, what is making us feel worried and beginning to address some of those concerns, partly with information, partly with talking to one another, partly with beginning preparation, whichever stage of um, the situation we're in. And then from that point of view, you're in a better position to be able to handle some of those anxieties and handle some of the uncertainty that is coming in the future. 
I completely agree. I think, you know, you mentioned your first point that it's all about getting knowledge about the virus. And there is a lot of uh, information out there right now. There's a lot of worrying information and, you know, news outlets are do or make us feel more and more anxious. So tell me, how, how can we prepare to get better knowledge, especially as medical professionals? What are the trusted sources? So I'll talk about some of the sources that I've been using. Um, and I talked about some of those in the article. I have looked at the World Health Organization. I've looked at papers that have come out, for example, uh, the paper that came out recently from Professor Ferguson's team at Imperial College. Um, I've looked at, I do use news sources. I've looked at the BBC and um, the independent live feeds at times. And I've just, I think one of the things is that we do have to um, be checking things for ourselves. And so I think, when you receive messages via WhatsApp, for example, those messages may or may not be true. And even, you know, even on some of my um, WhatsApp groups that I have with medical colleagues, some of the information that's come through sounds plausible. And then we found out that it's not true. Um, and so I think that we have to be questioning all the time and we have to be, when we receive information, returning to what we think are trusted sources uh, to clarify and to ask questions rather than assuming that even though the place that it's come from, i.e. particularly on social media, is accurate, we need to check that because otherwise it will be increasing our anxiety um, unnecessarily, maybe. Yeah, and a great example of this was this uh, article and lots of rumours going around about ibuprofen causing uh, you know, deterioration in patients with COVID-19. But I think the NHS England director, um, you know, put out some information there today so it really is the nhs england website and that we should be trusting i assume yeah i think the nhs england website is a is a good source particularly for uk-based um information um particularly understanding that the the what's going on in different countries at different times is slightly different so number one in terms of understanding what the virus is and is doing you know, actually, there's quite a lot of information from the World Health Organization and from um, medical papers that are coming out. But understanding what guidance there is about particular nuances that are happening in our particular nation, NHS um, websites are a good place to go um, if you're looking for your first port of call, really. And a lot of people use social media this day. I mean, Twitter and LinkedIn are used uh, constantly. I think my screen percentage has gone up by 34% in the last week alone. Uh, are there any trusted uh, Twitter accounts or uh, people you follow that feel are giving good information that's helping uh, uh, relieve your anxiety in any way? Um, there, I, don't, I try not to follow Twitter accounts, honestly, because I find you can very quickly be in a place where you're following something that isn't so trusted and you don't always necessarily have an opportunity to check it. Um, but in the um, article I wrote, I actually put in a link to a, um, a Forbes article on good Twitter accounts to follow during, uh, during the COVID crisis. And also um, LinkedIn does a, a daily co coronavirus update. Um, and so if you're on LinkedIn, that's a really good place to get actually really good quality written articles that look not only at the healthcare implications, but also economic and social implications, which are obviously extremely important for people as well. Yeah, no, very true. And we'll put a link to your article into the show notes of, of this episode. Uh, moving on, obviously, you know, as clinicians, uh, 
you know, most of us as consultants, but also juniors, you know, we're working within trusts and it's important to understand what our local trusts are doing. Uh, NHS England yesterday released a, a document essentially spelling out the next phase of what they expect, which is for all non-essential elective operating to be ceased from at the latest uh, April 15th for a period of three months, um, in addition to uh, reducing footfall essentially in outpatient units. Um, tell me, who is in charge at trust level and are they merely following orders from the NHS England or do they, or will we as uh, responsible clinicians also have a say in, in how we proceed from now? I mean, to answer the second part of that question first, we, we do have um, a role to play as clinical leaders, as consultants in our particular units. Um, despite or no matter who is in charge, interpreting the guidelines that are given at a local level is something that we're going to have to be doing in our individual areas because there is no way that our leaders can understand the nuances of what's going on in your particular clinic or your particular theatre or in relation to the patients that you are particularly serving. That each of the um, bodies, for example, the British Orthopaedic Association has also released guidelines. I understand that uh, potentially, for example, the British Society for Children's Orthopaedic Surgeons is about to release some guidelines looking at which patients may be time sensitive and which patients may potentially be left for a longer period of time. But once you receive that guidance, that's something that you have to interpret in your own practice. And so obviously, I'd written about the importance of triaging our own services um, and beginning that process um, up front. And then obviously, that will be better informed when we have additional guidelines that come along from the various societies. Correct. I, I think, think you know, we will carry on with managing sort of DDH and public harnesses and obviously Ponsetti babies. But there are a lot of things that can be left and delayed. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I think, it, it, I think that we all understand and I suspect that the, the public understand that there's a certain level of rationalisation that's going to have to take place. Um, I have been doing um, some elective clinics today and every patient that came in was were understanding and, you know, were asking questions and were really appreciative that I was actually still here to see them. And so I think that we we'll find that people do understand in the main and are um, expecting that things will change in the healthcare service. Um, no, and so, I'm sorry, I've been involved in a couple of meetings with uh, orthopedic departments at different hospitals. And obviously we've sort of have a plan as to what we could do in this situation. We obviously want to use our skills and optimize our skills where they're best used. Uh, I know you've also had a meeting at your local hospital today. Tell me, uh, separate to paediatric orthopedics, what can orthopedic surgeons do now to help get us through this uh, pandemic? So, as I've said, the BOA have released guidance, and obviously um, lots of departments will be looking at that in their own areas. Some of the things that we're looking at doing is making more of the decisions about patients that enter the hospital being at a consultant level so that we can reduce the foot flow of patients that are coming into the hospital. So rather than um, patients coming in and maybe being admitted by more junior colleagues and then the consultants making decisions um, once they've been admitted, those decisions can be made upfront from the A&E department um, and from maybe uh, triage areas or fracture clinics where patients are seen more promptly and decisions are made about 
whether or not they need surgery, whether or not they need admission, and also follow-up decisions, um, you know, practical things like if we put a plaster on that can be removed at home, then actually you may not need to come back in three or four weeks' time. We can see you in six weeks' time because you can take the plaster off at home. So, so trying to improve uh, the triage system at the, at the door, trying to improve the um, speed with which decisions can be made on the wards so that patients that are in the hospital can be discharged more promptly. Um, so A, so they can get home and B, so that they are less likely to have unnecessary exposure means that um, consultants can be really at the forefront of helping to um, increase the flow through the hospital. Yeah, and of course, and, you know, I feel that, you know, trauma is especially one of these areas where, you know, I feel will be likely we will become almost an A&E minors uh, uh, with managing patients with fractures with plasters, and it may actually end up avoiding a lot of unnecessary interventions with them. Uh, tell me about the role of virtual clinics. I spent Monday morning and I managed to get 70% of my clinic done over the telephone especially obviously follow-ups. Tell me how important you feel they are at this time and uh, if you have any tips as to how people can start implementing it within their practice. I think they're very important. I think patients will understand that they can't come to a hospital, but they still need, you know, elective patients still have needs. And despite coronavirus happening, people are still having other um, morbidities and other things that they need to be managed and so telephone um, consultations and even in some places I understand video consultations will be an important part of practice I think over the next few months and you know who knows about beyond beyond this then and so I think some of the tips about that is that having a consultation on the phone is different from having a face-to-face -face consultation and so I've um, talked with some of our management team here about the need to have um, pro formers or protocols actually written down to help guide a clinician through the phone call because actually there are things that happen when you're having a face-to-face -face consultation that that jogs your mind to remind you to ask certain things that you will not have that when you're on the phone so you need something that reminds you to ask certain questions and to ensure that you've safety netted your patient you know, you said to them, if this changes or this changes or this changes, please make sure you contact us back. Um, and so it's important to have thought through how that conversation is going to go and not to just necessarily to just get on the phone and have a conversation, but have a moment beforehand thinking, how will I say what I need to say? And also, how am I going to follow them up after this phone conversation has happened? Yeah. Um, I found a few of my patients were very happy not to come to hospital and drive in and put themselves at risk and pay for parking. Uh, I found a couple of uh, patients who probably did not need to come and see me and just needed some reassurance and some others that I would have probably sent them for ongoing investigations. So we managed to you know, alleviate at least, as I said, 70% of my clinic on that day. Let's move on to uh, what we may end up being asked to do, which is to sort of renew our skills uh, as medical professionals that is not within the field of orthopedics and sort of managing uh, ventilation or, you know, or managing these patients with uh, coronavirus. Um, as orthopedic surgeons, we are largely ATLS qualified, which means we have had some basic training in airway management. And uh, we are used to sort of handling high stressful situations. 
And the GMC has given guidance basically saying we should expect to work outside the area of our expertise. So uh, has anything been suggested to you at your trust or do you think this is something that is going to be blanket uh, mandated with retraining uh, in around uh, England? I mean, I have been asked whether or not I can ventilate patients or when was the last time I ventilated the patient. And I think that obviously strikes a chord of concern for some people if they've never ventilated or if it's been a long time or if they feel like um, they're not in a position to be able to retrain to a useful level. But I think that that's not the only skill that's going to be needed in this uh, particular situation. And I think some of that will be about us um, doing what I've seen that my colleagues are already willing to do, which is take a sideways step into doing things that maybe, you know, is about helping to um, provide support assistance in um, an intensive care setting rather than necessarily doing the intubating and the ventilating. Um, people will, I think, have to work outside of comfort zones, but I don't think that that means... And I don't think that people will choose to work in a way that is unsafe. It's about you pushing forward into something that's a little bit out of your comfort zone. And that pushes that person into something that's a little bit out of their comfort zone. And then you, everything pushes forward slightly to give more people who are available to do ventilating and who are available to take on those roles. So I think that the joint statement from the GMC um, talks about um, in, uh, um, encouraging us to work more flexibly but the important thing is to ensure that we're not doing that in a way that's unsafe yeah i mean you know we are all one we are not orthopedic surgeons or urologists or respiratory we're, we are all health professionals working together at this time right now and if that means you know uh, portering or cleaning the floors or you know or, or doing something that's a little bit outside of our comfort zone but helps the situation i think everyone will plan to muck in uh, when we talk about obviously our role, uh, this is mainly as senior clinicians, but obviously people that are largely going to be affected are our juniors and trainees. Um, medical students have been told that they may um, graduate early without final exams and be almost drafted in to help. Um, ST3 interviews will no longer be face to face. Uh, final exams have been cancelled, essential courses have been cancelled. There's been talk of CC dates being pushed back. And uh, recently, there's also documentation showing that uh, junior doctors are unlikely to rotate as they normally would, um, unless there be specific guarantees they were being trained. Uh, this is a really risky thing with these juniors. A lot of them are going to be really overworked and uh, may even put quite a lot of the next generation off. How can we encourage them, support them, mentor them, and, uh, and be there for them? I think, first of all, we have to be aware of what, all of the things that you've just said, because without a kind of um, being cognizant of the fact that there are a generation now who are going to feel maybe a little bit lost, like they've lost out um, in some ways. And if we don't really take that on board, it can be quite easy to sweep those concerns under the carpet or to just move on from that because we think we're dealing with something that that looks immediately more oppressing. Um, so that would be the first thing. The second thing is I think that we have to encourage um, conversations with our immediate juniors, those that we have immediate responsibility for, that we're immediately mentoring and be ready to have, it doesn't have to be long conversations, but conversations that are saying to them, 
we understand that you have concerns. We don't have all the answers at the moment because we don't know the answers for all the things that you suggested, but their concerns are not going to be ignored. It's just that, that we don't necessarily have all the answers that they may need at the moment. So I think that's important because when we are going through uncertainty, we tend to try and grasp for more certainty. We, we, don't, we don't bed into becoming comfortable with uncertainty. We, we look for more things to give us um, assuredness. And actually, none of us can have that at this moment in time about all the issues that you've described and further afield from that. And so I think actually just being able to say to our juniors and the medical students, we don't have all the answers. We don't know how this is going to pan out, but actually, and we recognize that uncertainty makes you and even us anxious as well. But actually the way to handle that is in the first instance is to acknowledge that that uncertainty is there and acknowledge that not everyone is going to come out on the other side with everything that the way that they want it to be. But actually, we are able to weather that storm better by not grappling for more certainty in this current state because we can't get it. Um, and that will help us to have a platform to kind of step into answering some of those concerns and those questions. And moving on to sort of us at a personal level, um, obviously a lot of us are being affected by this. Holidays have been canceled, annual leave has been canceled, study leave has been canceled. But not only that, a lot of our families will, a lot of our families and friends will be affected by this and will become uh, gravely unwell. Uh, how can we plan uh, for supporting those around us in the way we have to persevere on? And also, how do we plan uh, for ourselves if we or someone within our household becomes unwell? I think, first of all, we have to be having the conversations. It's, um, it can be easy at times to get into a bit of silo when you're in the hospital because everything you're at the maybe a little bit closer to the coalface. And so you're seeing things from a very different perspective from what people out in the community are seeing things. And they're hearing things constantly on the news, which is reported in a way that maybe we are assessing in a slightly different way. So they may have different kinds of anxieties. So I think, first of all, having the conversations with people who are close to us, the people that we're responsible for, our children, for example, um, I saw a really good um, slide show that was sent around on WhatsApp for explaining coronavirus to, the ch to your children. And I did discuss that with my kids and they were really, they had lots to say. I was surprised how much they knew and I was surprised um, one of my children really, the other one wasn't. Um, and so having those conversations up front is really important, uh, I think, particularly with the children, with our children. Um, and then um, having a, a, a real conversation, you know, I've had with my parents about self-isolating, what that means for them, um, how we're going to communicate with them, when I'm thinking I might come and see them again, or when I'm not thinking I'm going to come and see them, what do we do about Mother's Day or Easter, for example. Um, having those conversations has meant that we've made some plans. I've made some plans with my siblings about, you know, who's going to be checking on my parents when. And having those conversations up front, I think, again, like I said about with the juniors, just helps to take away some of the stress that comes from the uncertainty because you've had some conversations and you've explained maybe some of your rationale for the decisions that we're making um, as a family. I think self-isolation in itself um, brings its own um, concerns and its own difficulties. It's, you know, 
for example, I've ordered um, one of the indoor training bike stands so that if I have to be indoors, I can cycle indoors um, and keep up some level of fitness. Um, and so making some plans for um, what am I going to do with my children? Am I going to go and buy everything in Hobbycraft while it's still there? Um, am I going to, um, what, what activities might they do during the daytime? So making those kind of plans ahead, I think will also be important so that should it come to an, a time for self-isolating, um, you've got some ideas of things that you can do. And you've also got a little bit of timetable for your day. You're not just ending up on Netflix or on, 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 um, on uh, Amazon Prime. And I think if we get unwell, then... One of the really important things I would say is to remember that the majority of these cases are mild. I think, you know, there is a real um, fear amongst um, people, not unreasonably so, given all the information we're getting in the press all the time, that getting coronavirus automatically means there is no hope. And that is not the case at all. And I think helping ourselves, even as healthcare professionals, to keep things in perspective means that we're far more likely to be able to weather the stress um, that this crisis may bring to us as individuals. Yes, exactly. I think it's really important to sort of have some structure if we do end up going into self-isolation. And I and my wife had a long conversation as to how we would plan our day. Our biggest worry at the moment is the schools may close and that's obviously going to put a huge amount of stress on uh, childcare provision and how we sort of manage that. But then I've also had conversations with uh, my parents and my grandparents about how we're, we're really supposed to self-isolate and do this. If we hear from the government, as I said, that this is going to go on for a number of months and NHS England have said that, uh, you know, we are going to stop elective activity for at least three months, uh, you know, this could easily go on for six months or more. Uh, as a healthcare workforce, we're going to be at the point of burnout, you know. So tell me, how can we stay resilient? Uh, what should trusts uh, and what should we be doing to avoid that at all costs? Because this is really the biggest test probably in our lifetime. Yes, I mean, I think it is, I was just speaking to a, a relative, one of the patients was saying, you know, it's a bit like, we'll be able to say it was a bit like in the time of the war, you know, in the war. And so remaining resilient, I think, speaks back to what I was saying about uncertainty. Um, if you're in a period where things are volatile and uncertain, um, you, we, the natural habit we have is that I, wanna, I want to try and gain control over some of this situation, um, which although you know, we've been maybe looking at a little bit within incredulity, um, is what has been going on with people buying toilet rolls. It's actually a, some way of trying to get utility, something that I can gain some control of, that I understand the function of, to kind of gain some control in the situation that I'm in. Um, and being resilient through times when things are volatile, um, first of all, is about being flexible. It's about recognising that, that maybe the systems and the structures that you have in your life are going to change and having an acceptance of that up front. I don't know um, how I'm going to get this particular food. I may not be able to get this particular food next week. I'm going to have to be a little bit flexible about what, what I eat next week um, when I haven't necessarily had to do that for the last two or three months. Um, and so flexibility is going to be important for us um, over the next few months. Flexibility in our job roles, 
um, flexibility in our communities and how we interact with um, um, our friends and our families. Um, I'm a person of faith. I go to church every Sunday, but I can't go to church every Sunday as of now. Um, our church has said that they won't be meeting on Sundays. And for me, that's a huge deal because that's something I've done every Sunday for as long as I can think about. Um, and so learning how to be flexible in communication um, and learning how to be flexible in the things that we do in our lives and also learning how to enjoy the new reality. And I don't mean the reality of coronavirus, but I mean the reality of if I'm self-isolating for two weeks with my kids, that's time with my kids that I probably never would have otherwise had. Um, and so hopefully in that situation, no one's very unwell. Um, and therefore, actually, this is an opportunity to spend some time with my kids in a way that I've not had an opportunity to do so before. Um, and that although that sounds that can maybe sound a little bit facetious with all that's going on, um, actually learning to have an attitude of choosing to appreciate the newness um, and appreciate the things that are different in this situation, I think is something that can really help us to um, embrace each of the new experiences that we are undoubtedly all going to have. I think the other thing is that the reality is that there are people who are going to lose loved ones in this, and that is probably the fear that is, is the most profound for all of us, is that this has brought home to us a reality of uncertainty that we live with all the time, but we, most of the time we think we have more certainty in our lives than we do. Um, and I think sometimes having conversations where we acknowledge that fear is important. To say to someone, actually, I'm really scared about this or that, gives an opportunity to connect with another person, gives an opportunity to share your fears, and maybe they get to share their fears with you. And actually, sometimes when we talk about things, we take out the power of that fear. The, 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 the actual hold that fear has on us is dissipated by sometimes just by having that conversation. So I think some of the resilience over time is going to be being, being ready to be more versatile in how we do things, being ready to be more versatile in how we communicate, being ready to be, um, you know, maybe a bit touchy-feely, which I know is not usual for orthopedic surgeons, but I think that even they might find that that is something that is useful for them over the next few months. I think that's a wonderful way to uh, end. You've given a really uh, succinct summary as to how we can stay resilient. Uh, Rantimi, I really want to thank you for taking out the time to speak to me today. Um, and I hope everyone will not only enjoy listening to this, but share this amongst your colleagues. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow our podcast on various uh, platforms. We are planning to record quite a number of these in the upcoming days and weeks and I hope you'll find them informative. Uh, please do get in contact if there's anyone you think we should be speaking to or if there's any particular questions you may have. Uh, Arantimi, have you got anything to end off the episode? Just to say thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to talk. And you know that I hope that in a few months time we'll be able to talk again and kind of reflect on how we have all come through this and what we've learned on the journey. Yeah, I think this is really going to be a, a pivoting moment in, uh, in the way the NHS and even we uh, uh, proceed in the future. But yeah, no, thank you very much. You're welcome.